Father, now we come to the scripture. I pray you would help us. Give us eyes to see. Uh, ears to hear. Uh, give us a disposition of hearts uh, to receive this. To believe this. Give us the strength to walk in it. Take away distractions, God, that are there in us. And so I pray that we can give attention to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians and chapter 2. Colossians and chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 7. Colossians and chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those of Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the fullness of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for that I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we've been working our way through this letter, ancient letter uh, to this ancient community, uh, Colossae, written by this apostle. We've come now to the place where we begin to consider his purpose, his reason uh, for writing this letter, what really drove him to do it, and, and really drove him indeed, I would say, because you'll notice here, he says that he said a great struggle for them. We've come across that word struggle before in Paul's identification of his life and work just in the previous verse that we ended, chapter 1, that he toiled and struggled, uh, this sense of struggle. Uh, the Greek in verse 29 is, is, a, is, a, is a verb agonizomai, and here, agon, we get this sense of agony, of struggle. Of, it's a word used in, in, in the arena of war, perhaps, of fighting. It's used in the arena of athletics, of wrestling or running or... or, or um, um, being in some contest of some type, this struggle, this wrestling. And so Paul is struggling on their behalf, wrestling, if you will, for them, with them, because of them. It's moved him then, driving him to, to write this letter to speak to them. He's, he's talked about his toil and struggle in a very general way in his life and ministry. His calling, as he said, was to... Um, up here in verse uh, 25, he became a minister. He had the stewardship to make the word of God fully known. And then he more specifically says of his life is that it was his calling to proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He was trying to grow everybody up. Everybody was in Christ. He saw it as his job, really, his task, his calling to grow them up uh, to, to maturity, really, and he said he toiled and struggled. He, he spent himself for this ministry, for this calling, for this cause, knowing, of course, it was God who energized him, knowing it was God who empowered him all the way. His feeling was toil and struggle, yet he knew he could continue on, he could step out in faith, knowing that God was at work uh, in him. 
Uh, it's interesting if you just have a bit of a rabbit trail with me. Verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Just, I just want you to tuck this away. That he was a man who struggled for people and their souls whom he had never seen. And they had never seen him. Now, I want you just to tuck that away because, because it's, it's easy for us, or at least likely for us, to struggle for those we know and who know us and to be involved in their lives. Now, certainly Paul was different than us. He was unique. He was an apostle. The world was his parish. And all of that, we know that. We give that to him. He, 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 that's who he was. We're not him in that sense. But it wasn't simply that the world was his parish that he struggled for other believers. He knew that in some sense he was knit to them, that there was a connection there, a union with them. And it's important for us to get beyond our just circles of those people we see face to face and struggle for them. And we can do that some in the context of our church, a church our side. There are people you don't know, but yet you hear things about, so you may pray for them and struggle for them in some sense. And then maybe some in the community and, and yet the larger world. And so we just tuck that away. Ask God to in some way make you conscious of having been knit together with other believers here, there, and everywhere and put in you a burden for them. This, that was his, his life. But he struggled for them. Very specifically, this struggle came probably in writing this letter. He said it was his task to, to proclaim, to warn, and teach um, in such a way that everyone would become mature in Christ, that he could present everyone mature in Christ. That was his calling, and so he sees that here, so he struggles for them. He knows that something's going on, causing him some distress for them, and so out of that struggle, he writes to them, he communicates to them, he, he lays out this letter. Not only that, he probably prays for them. He uses this expression, struggle, in, of prayer, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Epaphras. He writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's Paul's desire that they be mature. It's Paul's desire, as we heard here, as I read it, that they be fully assured. And so, uh, no doubt, he prays for them as well. Part of his struggle is praying for them. And, and what precipitates this struggle is the fact that there appears to be in their community some who are teaching that which is false. Notice in verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The little word plausible as it's translated, I read of the English Standard Version. I don't know what yours may say. But plausible means to be applauded. Things that sound really good but they're plausible only until you hear the truth and then you <laughs> realize that they're implausible and they're not really true. And so they're plausible arguments. These, things, these aren't crazy, stupid people. These are people that are appealing to something in us. They're, they're giving us these arguments and at first blush we're saying, yes, that must be true. Why wouldn't that be true? But they're things which contradict Christ and his work. He says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So you, you get what's troubling him. There's this sense of false teaching. And for Paul, for us, false teaching is deadly if believed. See, our whole lives are wound up about Christ and what we believe, what we know to be true about him. And thus, you see, if we believe that which isn't true, we don't believe that which is true, 
then we're in trouble. And so knowing that which is true of Christ is crucial to us. And so false teaching to us is dangerous, a dangerous thing. It isn't just just something we poke at and play at. It's something that's crucial in our lives because it's about Christ. And in him are the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. And so we must get that right so it's important. And so when this happens, it isn't just that these are they're convincing about this and that, which may not be quite right. It's, it's the fact there are false teachers, and he knows that, and it bothers him so, struggles. He struggles. He agonizes. He writes. He prays. The antidote, as he lays out, is in verse 2 for this problem. His prayer, what he will write them about, is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the fullness of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The solution to this false teaching is that they be fully assured, have full assurance of their understanding of the knowledge of God, which is Christ. That is, that they know Christ. It shouldn't surprise us. That that would be Paul's answer to this, Jesus. If you know him and really know him and you're certain of that and what you're certain of is really true, then you won't fall prey to these false teachers. So he wants them to be fully assured of that which is true of of Christ. That's the theme of his letter. That's why he begins by praying. As you remember from chapter 1 and verse 9, he began there by praying for them that they would walk or live worthy of Christ, fully pleasing them. He says, I want you to arrange your whole lives around Christ. He's worth it. He's worth everything. He's worth pleasing him in every way. So arrange your whole life around him. So that's his theme. He, he goes on, and remember, in chapter 1 and verse 15, and speaks to us of Christ. That he's the image of the invisible God and so forth. He's the firstborn among all creation. He's, everything in creation was made by him, through him, for him. He's the reconciler of us to God, the very head of the church. So he speaks of Christ, you see. So everything revolves around him. And again, Jesus is the one who comes to reveal him. The scripture tells us, that the word became flesh and made its dwelling place among us. The scripture tells us that it's Jesus, God the Son, who's come to reveal to us the Father, to make him known. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, So Jesus comes to reveal God, to reveal all that is true of him. And so Paul says, if you want to to know, then you need to know, believe, understand, have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is indeed Christ. Now he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Hidden not in the sense that they're not to be found. Hidden not in the sense that, uh uh-oh, we're in trouble because they're hidden and we'll never get to them. But hidden in the sense that they're stored there. They're deposited there. They're there. If you want to find these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the treasures and wisdom and knowledge about God, about ourselves, about life, then go to Christ. They're there. You'll find them there. That's where they're deposited. And you get this sense from Paul, that they're nowhere else, these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
But wouldn't it be a plausible argument to say that that can't be true? I mean, after all, no one can really have a monopoly on the truth, can they? Not, not one person, not one set of beliefs, not one religion. How, how, could, how could one have this monopoly on all of truth? Could that really be so? Tim Keller, in a recent book called The Reason for God, uh, writes of a, an old story called The Elephant and the Blind Men. Talks about some blind men coming up upon an elephant. One feels his, the elephant's leg and said, oh, this creature is like a tree because it's, it's, it's strong and it's round and it's tall. Another finds the trunk and says, no, this creature is like a snake. It moves and it's, and it's long and it's slender. Another one comes on the elephant's side and, and feels the side of the elephant and says, no, this, this, this creature is big and flat. Another feels its ear, the elephant's ear, and says, oh, it's just kind of floppy. So some have posited, well, that must be what it's like to know God because God is infinite and we're finite and we're like the blind men coming up to God and we're sort of feeling around and, and perhaps a Buddhist would touch God in this particular way and a Hindu in this particular way and, a, and, 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 and someone who's Islamic touched God in this way and someone who's a Christian touched God this way and someone who's Jewish touched God this way and, and we all get a sort of different feel but, but we know it's God. The problem is, how do we know that? The only way you know it's an elephant is if somebody isn't blind. And somebody can see that it really is an elephant, not these just individual pieces that they all make up one elephant. And the one who comes to us to reveal the elephant, forgive me for equating God and an elephant, you know my point. The one who comes to reveal God to us is Jesus. Why? Because he's the one who sees He's the one who is the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He knows him. He's God the Son. He's the very characteristics of God, deity in human form, taking on human nature. He knows him. he's He's the one who is sighted. And he says, I've got everything in me. Paul would say there isn't anyone like Christ. Why would you trust another? Again, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You can trust him. He sees it all. He knows it all. Don't fall for that. All wisdom and knowledge of God. All wisdom and knowledge of ourselves. All wisdom and knowledge of all of history is in him. Paul says, I want you to be fully assured of that understanding. I want you to know Christ fully assured in your knowledge of him. And he says this full assurance has, has great value. Oh, great value. It brings to us, no doubt, hope. See, once we're fully assured of these things, we have, we have a great hope. The scripture tells us that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. It's a bit redundant since the word amen means yes. 
to their yes and yes or amen and amen. Uh, but, but, but that's the very point. What does that mean? It means that because of Christ, everything that God has promised to his people will be granted. He's the guarantor of it. Yes and amen in him. Because Christ has come, because he's done what he did, then, in fact, all of God's promises will come to pass. We can trust them. They're true. That being our hope. And we know, of course, that Christ uh, reveals to us God like none other. He reveals both God's righteousness and his grace to us. And he doesn't confuse the two, nor does one compromise the other. In Christ, you see, God is fully just and fully gracious. He's just in the fact that, that sins are dealt with in him. He doesn't overlook his justice in order to give us grace. He deals with his justice all in Christ. He pours out the penalty for our sin upon him. And then he gives grace freely to those whom he's chosen to those who will believe to those who actually believe they're recipients of God's grace. No confusion between the two, no compromise one to the other. God is just and the justifier of all who believe. He reveals to us God. Gives us hope. We know the promises, therefore, of God that we're justified, that we're adopted, that we're being sanctified, that we will persevere, that we will see this glory, all are true, gives us great hope, the riches of that full assurance. To the degree that we don't have that assurance is the degree to which we doubt those promises of God. But you see, there's great riches in knowing this Christ and being assured of him because it enables us to walk firmly with him. Church in Thessalonica, Paul writes, and he puts it like this, 1 Thessalonians In chapter 1, verse 5. Now, verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, really. It's the same word that we have in Colossians 2, with full assurance. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What did receiving the word, knowing Christ with full assurance, bring to them? It brought them this desire. It enabled them to become imitators of Paul, to receive this word even in the midst of affliction, meaning that they were persecuted for believing this. What fools they would have been to receive that persecution and not be certain. (laughs) And not be certain. He goes on to put it like this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, listen, when you heard this word, so certain of it were you 
that you left everything else behind. All those things called idols. All those things that once defined you. All those things that said, this is who you are. Whether it was your job or whether it was another person or whether it was a perception that you would have of yourself or something that you possessed. He said, no, that no longer defines me. You left behind everything that once directed you. Once said, do this, do that. You left that behind. You left behind all that delight that you had in that former definition and direction. And now to say, Christ defines me. He tells me who I am. I am to live to glorify God. He is the one who directs my path. I'm to live like he commands. And I'm to find my delight in his definition and direction. They left all their idols behind. Why? Because they were certain. They knew that all wisdom and knowledge was in Christ. Uh, The author of Hebrews writes of that church in Hebrews in chapter 6. Verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's just gone through a great warning, if you you know this Hebrews chapter 6. But he says, I don't think that's true of you. I, I, I expect better things. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, listen, I want you to be earnest about having full assurance. Now, what we learn from Colossians is having full assurance is knowing, it means knowing Christ. So I want you to be earnest about knowing Christ. Why? Because when you really know him, you won't be sluggish. That is, you won't just sort of lollygag around here. But you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Use that word patience. Because he says, you're not going to get everything right now. You're going to need to live by faith. Well, how can you live by faith? You can only live by faith when you're certain that that which is promised will come. And we can only be certain that that which is promised will come if, in fact, we know that Christ's guarantee is really sure. So we must know him. And then he says, you won't be sluggish. You'll get on with it. Why? Because you know that that which he's promised is really true. And you can be patient in the midst of this. In fact, this particular church proved that. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read this, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we've confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, so we are sure we have confidence, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, he says, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, see, the author of Hebrews was a Presbyterian, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, listen, because we know Christ, we can draw near to him. We have full assurance of faith because he's cleansed us. Therefore, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. See, that's Paul's hope and desire for this church in Colossae in the midst of all of these heresies. He's saying, I want you to hold fast to your confession. How can you hold fast to this confession? Only when you know that Christ is true. And he goes on, the author of Hebrews does, to share with them a time when they, when they proved it. Verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle, agony, a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, right after you came to faith, it's so good that you really knew what you believed and were sure of it because it was tested. There was great affliction. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Saying, if you have full assurance of faith, fully assured of Christ and who he is, then, even if affliction comes, you'll hold fast because you'll know something. You'll know what he's promised. Now the question is, how do we get there? Paul prayed for them, but he also wrote to them. So we trust that this full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ comes by way of study, by way of understanding. And, and, and that certainly is true. We read through the scripture and we realize that, that God has revealed to us himself and his ways. And by way of his word, he writes to, he speaks through Moses and he says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Moses writes to the people, he says, these words aren't idle words to you, they're your life. And he says, so, so you need these words. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find me, and, and you will. They speak of him. Every part, the historical section of the Bible, the Psalms, the wisdom, the prophets, all speak of Christ. Certainly through the gospel, certainly through the letters, all speak of Christ. He's the theme of all of this. So we find him there. We learn of him there. It's important to know the facts of Jesus, to know who he really is. But that isn't Paul's point here. Notice how he puts it. Verse 2. He says, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, in order to reach that, you have to have hearts that are encouraged, that are strengthened because you're weak, so you'll need strength. And that strength comes, in a sense, from, yes, this truth that you learn from Scripture, but also in the context in which you learn it. Your hearts being knit together in love. So this is learned, this is this comes to you, you reach this assurance of understanding and knowledge in the context of loving, believing community. Loving, believing church. That's where it comes. God works, teaches us in the midst of one another. 
Without that, we'll never reach this understanding. Or we won't reach it without the scripture. We won't reach it without learning. We won't reach it without any of that. But we're to learn it in the context of this community knit together in love. Now, why is that so? You might say, well, because that's the way we are wired. Go back to the Garden of Eden and we find that God created Adam. It wasn't enough. He created Adam and Eve together. Family, children, clan, tribe, nation. We see that in the context of the church. God draws us together, united to him and to each other. Paul was knit with a group of people he had never seen. Knit only because they too knew Christ. There was something tied them, united them together, you see, even though miles and even introductions kept close relationship from happening, yet knit together in love. He still struggled for them, still had a sense of connection to them, to love them. He says it takes place in the midst of all of that. Church, God calls us his family. He calls us a holy nation. He calls us a kingdom of priests together, a group, church, assembled, called out from the world to be together. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. So there's this community knit together in love. Why is that so? Paul said that in his work of proclaiming, warning and teaching so that he could present everyone mature in Christ, I believe he would say that that teaching and that warning, that proclaiming, to bring maturity is most effective in the context of a community of love. From whom do you receive warnings well from? The first answer, of course, is no one. Uh, That's the first blush at a warning. Generally, we want to argue and say, no, 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 that's not right. You've just come to me to tell me that I'm in danger, that something's wrong in my life, and I'm here to tell you I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Second wave is, I would say this, that we receive that best from someone who comes to us in tears. Paul said that he warned the church in Ephesus every day with tears. My guess is we receive that best from someone who loves us as a father loves a child. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and said that he warned them as a father warns his children. I suspect we receive that best in the context of a community where as Paul writes to the church in Galatia, that he was in the pangs of childbirth until Christ was formed in them, that he felt to them as their mother. He loved them such. Warnings happen best in the context of loving community. If we're to grow up, we have to be in the context of that so people will love us enough to warn us and we'll be accepting enough to hear. Not only that, but teaching happens best in the context of Love and humility, where it isn't an arrogant one coming in from the outside, as we used to call them, hired guns to come in and to to teach us and to preach to us. No, it's in the context of people that live life together and we know each other, warts and all, and we love each other. And it comes out of humility knowing that it's a gift from God to us, not arrogantly spoken, not one above another, but one who comes in the midst, ones who come in the midst of each other to teach that kind of context of love. Not only that, but the context of love that says, I will love you sufficiently so that if I see something in your life, I will come to you because it's a real hassle to go to people. It's, it's really no fun. I don't know if you think we like this. 
<laughs> but think about it in the context of your own life. Do you like that sort of thing? If you do, I don't like you. No. Um, if you like that sort of thing, there's something a little, little loose there uh, in all the control uh, uh, box of your life. But it's not a fun thing. It requires a sense of love, of obligation, of duty, of concern to go. The context of love. But not only that, in order for us to grow up in maturity, it takes a community where there is the operation of love. Where the Spirit gives gifts as he will, and those gifts are operated out one to another. So that folks who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to encourage, come to encourage. The folks who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to administer, come to help others. Folks who are gifted in hospitality, come to greet. Those who are gifted in various ways, come by the Holy Spirit in love and share those gifts with the body. And, and they're willing to do that because they love. And as I just mentioned, one's willing to receive because you feel that sense of love. Not only that, if we're ever to grow up and mature, we must love. I've debated in my own life for years and years and years, which is more important? To be loved or to love? Because uh, I'm not too smart, I've just concluded it's a false dichotomy. And the answer is yes. Um, certainly we need to be loved. We, we need to have this sense of love and security. God loves us. That, that message that he loves us brings great hope. We, we know that those of us who have grown up in context families where we haven't known love are damaged by that. So we know that being loved is an important thing. But it's amazing to me, as I read through the scripture, what I read is a command that I'm to love. And so that must be a deep-seated need. Maybe not one that's intuitively obvious, so God has to mention it so much. But we're created in his image. And he is one who loves. Thus, we're to love. We're commanded to love. So it's a need that we have to love. We can't live really, not really live, without really loving. Because that's what we were made to do, created in his image. And sometimes the fact that we haven't been loved impedes our ability to love. But I think there comes a point in life when we have to say, okay, I haven't been loved. God, help me, I'm going to love. And that we are to love. You see, we'll never grow up to maturity until we love. So we need this context of being in a community that's knit together where I feel the freedom to come to you and love you and care for you. Do you ever wonder why it is that we grow so much in our faith in Christ when we participate in ministry loving each other? If you're in children's ministry, I mean, VBS is a huge deal for us, and we got gathered to do that, and everybody loves it, and we get a great buzz for a while, and it's more than just a buzz of excitement. It's this buzz that says, I've contributed to the life of another, and that, by the very wonderful working of God, brings us a greater sense of assurance that, yes, I belong to him, as well it should. You know, the apostle John writes to us of, of this assurance. In First John, in chapter 3, he writes... By this it's evident, verse 10, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so you see, if we're not loving our brother, we won't have assurance at all that we belong to him. Well, we get assurance by, by God's promises to us. We get assurance by our profession of faith in those promises. But promises 
and profession empty out if there's no practice and the practice of the promises of God and our profession of them is as we love. So we need this community of love. So we're doing VBS together. It's, it's not just the fun and excitement. It's all of that. But it's the fact, really, that we're contributing to the lives of these children that they grow up in the faith. When you serve in the nursery, actually, it should increase your faith as you're loving those children. As you teach Sunday school, it should increase your faith, not only because of what you're learning as you're teaching, but because you're loving another. You help out with youth if you serve them in any particular way. When we care for one another, when we're in covenant groups together, when we're in Bible study together, you know, there's a huge difference between a Bible study that's simply academic and a Bible study where you're learning together in community of love. One's simply a classroom. You're taking notes. You're by yourself. You get something out of it. It's a good thing. But there's something greater even in learning in the context of a loving community as you're learning and loving Remember, Jesus put it like this, John, chapter 14, and verse 21. He writes, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, the commandment of Jesus in this passage is that we love each other. A new commandment I give to you, he says, that you love one another as I've loved you. And now notice the promise. He says, whoever has these commandments to love and keeps them, he it is who uh, loves me, and who, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's in the midst of our loving that we see Jesus. He manifests himself to us. And thus we grow in our assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. As we care for each other, we're seeing Christ. As we participate in family promise, as we care for people who are in need, we experience Christ. In this most recent difficulty in my own family, as the church gathered to care, uh, we've had a global increase in our knowledge of Christ. That happens in, in sort of regional ways as individual ones are cared here. This was a deal because it was my wife and all of that. So everybody's joined together. Thank you. It was wonderful. It is. But we've seen that growing together. And, and many say, well, I grew because there was something miraculous that seemed to happen. And I say, yes, that's true. She was healed in ways that the doctors are still astounded and all of that. But two things. Number one, it came in the midst of your caring, and I can say this because it was my, our situation, that even if she had died, because we're knit together in love, we we would have grown in our assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. Paul ends this section, this little section that I read with this summary statement because you can say, well, okay, now what? He ends with this summary statement. He says, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted 
and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I don't have time, obviously. Well, I do, but you don't. But he said, I want you to walk in him as you, were, as you learned him. How did you learn him? How were you taught him? You were taught him as the one who is completely sufficient. The one in whom you can completely trust. You're rooted there. Continue to be built up in that. Your faith is established there. Be thankful. Let's pray, Father. We pray, God, for me and for us that you would continue to grant us assurance that we may know Christ. Thus, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and that we would more and more be knit together in love that we may reach full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.